0: Receipts live show at Tudum.com slash W-H-T-R. That's Tudum, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash we have the receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers.
2: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. I'm your host, Rebecca Lavoie. On today's episode, we take a closer look at Bob Ross' Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed with the documentary's producer and director, Joshua Rofay. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch all of Bob Ross' Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed before listening on. Bob Ross brought joy to millions as the world's most famous art instructor on the TV series The Joy of Painting. He encouraged his students to embrace creativity and believe in themselves, becoming a cultural phenomenon along the way. But beyond the iconic hair, soothing voice, and nostalgic paintings lies a mystery that many have yet to discover involving the artist's personal life and business empire.
0: I've been wanting to get this story out for all these years. A yeah, long time.
3: There have been some hard days in the past, no doubt about that.
0: I tell you, the best mountain painter in this technique is probably my son Steve. Boy, that rascal, Whew. he can paint some mountains. Maybe we'll get him on here before the series is over course he never could tell anybody anything about it. He was always pretty quiet
1: about the whole thing.
2: Joshua, welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So Joshua, I would love for our audience to know about your background in filmmaking. You've made such a wide variety of documentaries. How did you get started?
1: Well, I guess taking it back a number of years, I I was at a friend's birthday party and her parents were visiting from Panama City, Florida. And her father was the judge there for, I think, about 30 years at that point. And I kind of spent the night just talking to him and asking him about his career. And one of the questions I asked him was, you know, what cases and trials have just stuck with you and haunted you? And he immediately said there was this one case it was a 15-year-old girl who shot a cab driver in the back of the head, killing him. And it was an automatic life without parole sentence because she was convicted of first-degree murder, and first-degree murder carried a life without parole sentence, regardless of age. And I could see that he 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 struggled with whether or not that was, uh, you know, the right thing to do from a sort of moralistic and humanistic standpoint. And in that moment, I literally knew that I was going to make a documentary about juvenile life without parole hmm. and so i googled the words credit cards and i now had a handful of credit cards that i could go start making uh <laughs> making a doc with um you know certainly having no idea what i was doing but that was the beginning of doc filmmaking for me and 6 years later i ha- i actually had a film called lost for life it actually it used, to, it used to be on netflix for for a number of years and it didn't tell the story of that case but uh it ended up being a handful of other juvenile life without parole cases about 10 years later or so, I made a series called Lorena that was about Lorena Bobbitt. And it was my attempt to recontextualize Lorena's story that really everybody had gotten so wrong. And then after that, I made a, I made a doc series that also came out this year called Sasquatch. which was a very bizarre murder mystery. And now we're, we're here talking about Bob Ross.
2: You know, this is such an interesting subject because I'm not sure how old you are, but I am of the perfect age. I'm a Gen Xer. To remember back when there were only like six television channels and PBS was one of them and Bob Ross was on a lot. It was like the kids shows and basically and, and Bob Ross and a bunch of like very boring documentaries, at least when you were a kid, they were boring. Um, and Bob Ross, when I was a kid, there was no nostalgia attached to Bob Ross. It was just like a painting show that you would just watch because it was on. When do you think... Bob Ross turned from a thing that was on when we were kids to fill the time to this incredibly nostalgic thing and this nostalgic man and this nostalgic, artful feeling that we look upon and remember with so much love and warmth.
1: I think it happened in 2015. In 2015, Twitch, which is a streaming app, a streaming platform, they put his show on on a loop for about 24 hours, I think. And so all of a sudden, you had all of these kids who had never heard of Bob Ross or seen him before. They had this introduction to him and immediately were just so taken by him. And then he was propelled forward by way of uh, GIFs or GIFs, I'm not sure how you say it, and memes. And I think it's so interesting that Bob's show is as lo-fi as it gets. And it was really the advent of these newer technologies as they relate to social media that took his... uh, his being an icon to really a whole other level.
2: Is that how you intersected with Bob through digital media or were you a fan before that?
1: So I'm 38 and I think I just, I would have just missed the boat, Mm. you know, when I was a kid, but I couldn't tell you the exact moment I became aware of him. At some point in the last handful of years, I became aware of Bob Ross as just something that was part of the zeitgeist and just pop culture.
2: I think a lot about his painting style and kind of the egalitarian nature of it. I mean, his whole thing was anyone can do it, right? Is that part of the appeal that you know he made these things that you know looked really complicated, but as we see in your film, what is it? Kathy Lee Gifford is able to or was it was it Regis? I don't remember was able to actually make something that looked a whole lot like his painting, and that's the whole idea, right? Anyone can do it, and if you mess up, it's no big deal. Is 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 that? Part of the appeal, you think?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that um, rarely do we have somebody who is a celebrity of sorts who willingly demystifies that thing that they're known for being great at. And his whole MO was to demystify the thing that made him known and to tell you that you can do it too. And, you know, I think it's that coupled with the total lack of judgment, which is obviously so rare. I mean, we. We have a toxic amount of judgment rolling around on a constant basis. And here's this guy who tells you that you actually you couldn't possibly screw up if you tried and you can turn it into something even better. You know, that's something that we crave, even if we're embarrassed to admit that we crave that.
2: Talk about the bravery component of it, too, because. You know, there's this scene in the film, and I remember this from watching the show, where he actually manages to create, like, a tremendous amount of tension in what otherwise could be described as a sort of, like, ASMR exercise or, like, hypnosis exercise where, like, he's almost done and then suddenly he puts, like, a giant black line down the front of the canvas and you think he's ruined it. I mean, like, that creates suspense in his show in some way, right?
1: Yeah, again, going back to this notion of it being, you know, super lo-fi, it's a painting show. He's got a couple minutes left. And this is talked about in the film by a woman who was the director of the show. Her name was Sally Shank. And she was a friend of Bob's and directed many episodes of The Joy of Painting. And she would see him pull it off time after time. But every single time he would throw a, a huge black line in the middle of a painting with you know a minute and a half, two minutes to go. <laughs> she thought, well, this is gonna be the one where it doesn't work out. And she was on the edge of her seat. And sure enough, there it was, a tree that would just add depth of field to the entire painting. Um, It's funny to think of of what could be suspenseful, you know, as it relates to Bob Ross, but he literally did that. And I I know that people still feel that when they see those moments.
2: I'm curious about what you think of the art itself. You know, I'm looking at some of the notes about your film, and there's actually been an analysis done of his artwork, I guess most of them were donated to the various PBS stations on which his show appeared, The Joy of Painting. And I guess 538, the blog, analyzed uh, episodes of his show and found that his paintings, uh, 91% of them included at least one tree, 44% included clouds, 39% included mountains, etc. What do you like personally make of these paintings, especially after making you know these films? I think like... You know, Bob Ross original, of course, is a Bob Ross original, but the style of paintings themselves is like maybe kind of grandma's housey, but also, again, it bears this kind of like nostalgia and warmth, and I'm wondering, like, what do you think of just the style of painting personally after staring at them probably through many, many cuts of this film?
1: My reaction to art is always a visceral one. I, I, I don't like to take an intellectual approach that is not interesting to me. When I look at his paintings... I feel warm and cozy, it's that simple. I mean, why wouldn't I? Look at the elements that you just described. They scream serenity. They scream, this is a place where I want to go for the weekend. This is where I wish I had a vacation home, (laughs) you know? Everything about the elements that he includes in a painting, for me, they just, they make me feel calm. They make me feel good. You can hear the footsteps in the snow. Mm. You can hear the river. Um, You know, you can hear the wind through the trees. That's just what his stuff does for me.
2: Tell me about the decision to use his style of painting and some of the recreations in the film.
1: I knew I wanted to do something that was in the, the spirit of animation as it related to his paintings. It was really challenging to arrive at the simplest form that we ended up with, because at a certain point we were wondering, do they have motion or are they actually animated? And none of that ever worked because, of course, Bob Ross's paintings are their stills. And at the end of the day, we felt that if we were to honor the spirit of what he did, then they would be painted in the alla prima style, which is what he painted in. And so we just, we wanted to paint in the alla prima style, but at the same time, it couldn't really be a Bob Ross style painting because Bob Ross didn't paint people. He didn't paint, you know, the inside of, of, of living rooms or, or anything like that. So It was just try to channel the spirit of the moment via an a la prima painting.
2: Can you talk about that a la prima style? Remind listeners what that style was, how it worked.
1: A la prima was uh, the first attempt, which is so interesting because everything that he does feels so spontaneous. But he then sort of goes against that when he tells you it doesn't matter if your first attempt didn't work, you can just fix it. Um, Or on the flip side, he's telling you that you're First attempt was supposed to go that way, and you didn't make a mistake and just sort of keep rolling with it. Hmm.
2: I was really surprised, and perhaps this is something I just didn't remember, uh, Bob's personality on film, his cheekiness, his sensuality, his use of dirty jokes you know while he's painting talking to the audience you know he talks about caressing making love to the painting um talk about that personality and and the way that he used it in the show and when you talk to people did did they see him that way did they talk about that side of him
1: yeah i mean they they spoke about in the film that he had this idea that if he were to connect with with the audience he should whisper um, and he even described it as, as talking to one person in bed. Um, and so there is this unexpected sensuality that he brought to the table in an attempt to connect with the audience. And it feels more risque than what you think of when you think of PBS. Yeah but somehow it flew back in the day and people responded to people
2: it. People forget the 70s were a risque time. I mean, just watch any game show in the 70s, like Hollywood Squares, you know, it was a different time back
1: then. <laughs> yeah, and, and his show started in the early 80s, and so I'm sure there was just, you know, it was carryover from them.
2: Yeah, and he had that vibe, right, with the uh, the Afro, which turns out was a perm. I didn't know that. Was that something that you knew before you worked on this film?
1: Yeah, I, I I did know that I I had read that somewhere, but uh, that's something that I I've heard a lot of people are disappointed to learn.
2: Was there anything else about him that you learned that was genuinely surprising to you? Because um, the perm was surprising to me, but you know, were there any other surprises for you about Bob Ross as you were unpacking him as a person?
1: I mean, truly, his whole life, I knew nothing other than he was this icon that possessed this sort of magic that calmed me when I would watch episodes of his show. Er- er- everything that's in the film was was really news to me. Um, other, other than that piece of information about the berm, I mean, from his marriages to his business dealings, you know, to the relationships in his life, um, I knew none of it because you know it was nothing that you can learn by googling. Hmm. The only way to to learn these things was to speak directly to the people who uh, who knew Bob intimately.
2: Hmm. Did you struggle with the idea that you, you know, part of his story is that, you know, there was infidelity in his relationships, something that some people think as a very sort of unimportant detail when telling somebody's biography. In this case, you know, I think it's arguable that it is an important part of this particular story because of, you know, the way that his legacy and his estate issues played out. Did you struggle with how to tell that part of his story? Because, you know, it can be complicated and, and you don't want to make it like, it's a crime because it isn't a crime, but it is also part of the legacy, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I, I don't like when I'm watching something and clearly um, any sort of controversial or questionable behavior by an icon is just sort of skipped past. Yeah. That's not an honest representation of a human. Even if somebody is an icon, they are a human being. And hu- human beings are obviously so deeply flawed and so regular and so remarkably unimpressive. <laughs> um I believe we're all disasters in, in one way or another. And learning that Bob Ross cheated on his wife and was having an affair, we had to include that, absolutely. It ended up perhaps uh, setting about, you know, the rocky relationship that was to follow years later. I, I thought it was a really important detail. I I'm never interested in something that just presents somebody as this sort of demigod. Hmm. He was a regular human being and he had flaws. And I think if we were to represent his story honestly, then that should absolutely be included. Hmm.
2: Was it difficult getting, like, a lot of people to participate in this film, given, like, the issues surrounding the topic here, the legal issues? I mean, did you have interviewees back out? You know, are there people sort of afraid to talk on camera? Was that a challenge when we were making the film?
1: It was really challenging. I mean, I remember when we were on our first shoot, there were people who had, after months of back and forth, had agreed to participate and they were suddenly dropping out the night before their interview was scheduled, two nights before. um, I've actually never had anything like it before when making a doc. And it was clear from the start, people were very upfront about being afraid to speak. That really in many ways is, is what made me really wanna make the film. Why would you be afraid to speak about Bob Ross and you're telling me that you loved him and that you miss him, but you're afraid of some sort of legal retaliation? I mean, that is so compelling.
2: It really is compelling, especially given, you know, I'll tell you um, an anecdote from my own life. Last weekend was like a state fair and it took place in my town and I went and there was one of those like fair carnival games where you like you know, have a water pistol, and you, like, shoot it into a clown's mouth, and you win a stuffed animal if you win. One of the stuffed animals was a Bob Ross doll, and it was right after I had seen your film, right? Oh, wow. And I, of course, looked up and saw that was one of the prizes, and I saw the, you know, the tag on it, the brand tag, and I was like, I am looking at this completely differently now, and having very different feelings about the whole thing, and it felt very charged, and I felt I don't want to say like nervous, but I also felt like, you know, am I complicit if that's the one that I choose, if I'm the winner of this clown water pistol game? Is that what you wanted to happen to a viewer like me? Did you want me to view sort of the nostalgia-based merchandise around this man differently after having seen your film?
1: I think you had the only fair response. How could you not? While I didn't set out to make a film that I hoped would elicit that reaction. Along the way, of course, I realized people are going to look at all of these little sort of tchotchkes and knickknacks totally differently after they see this movie, and, and rightfully so. It's not just some straight-ahead thing. It is charged.
2: What was it like spending so much time with Steve Ross?
1: Steve's one of the most interesting doc subjects I've ever had the pleasure of, of being with. It's unbelievable what you can do
0: with a big old two-inch brush. If you'll just devote a little bit of time to practice. And it doesn't take a great deal. We get letters from people every day that have never painted, who are doing some of the most beautiful things. They've learned to create their own masterpieces. It's what makes all this worthwhile. The fact that people are doing this and enjoying a tremendous amount of success. All right. To me, the, the first step of accomplishing anything is to believe that you can do it, and I know you can do it.
1: I can't imagine what it was like having a dad who was famous and then going through the tragedy of losing him to cancer dealing with the legal back and forth over his estate, and also seeing the world at large, blissfully uh, loving your father as this icon, but having, having no idea what the real story is and, and what his struggles were. Um, he's so salt of the earth. And one of the things that I was really struck by was just the pain around the loss of Bob, around his death. That wound was still so raw. I wonder I would I would have to think that it it's because he's he's so ubiquitous. I mean, for the rest of us we lose people and sure there are reminders everywhere, but we don't literally see their face everywhere mm. constantly. When someone's an icon, they don't belong to us anymore. They're everybody's. And so I think that plays a role in in all of that too.
2: And the name too, right? I mean, this is it's not just his likeness and his face and his imagery that has been you know, it's a brand that he's not allowed to have any part of, but it's also a name that he shares. Did you find yourself thinking about that? Like like I did. I mean, the entire time watching him and seeing Steve Ross, Bob Ross's son, as the title under his, his, his face, I was just thinking, he shares this name that he can't legally use.
1: I cannot even imagine the level of frustration around that. We obviously attempted to get to the core of that in the film, but nothing can replicate what somebody's real life experience is. Obviously it, it it has to be really difficult. Hmm. I I mean, I know it is.
2: Obviously you didn't have the participation of the Kowalskis in this film, but did you have your interview with them? Like your imaginary wishful interview with them written? Did you know what like the first question you would have asked them was?
1: So my mentor when it comes to documentaries, is somebody named Mark Jonathan Harris? He's a, an amazing filmmaker. He made a great film just a couple of years ago called Foster about the foster care system in Los Angeles. He worked on this film with us actually. And I remember years ago I was going to do an interview with somebody on my first doc on Lost for Life, and. He suggested perhaps as a way to calm my nerves. I was, <laughs> I was young. I was in my twenties, and I was, uh, I was trying to do this big interview for the piece. And he said, just start at the beginning. And so when I sit down with somebody, I don't necessarily even have a list of questions at all times. Um, I really just want to start at the beginning and, and have a conversation. I would have loved to interview the Kowalskis, and uh, it's a shame they didn't participate.
2: Now, Joshua, um, before I watched your film, my son watched it and he recommended it to me and he categorized it as, quote, the best true crime film on Netflix right now. And I'm curious whether or not you view this documentary as a true crime film.
1: That is so interesting. Um, I don't view it that way, but I, I certainly see what he what he's saying. I, there is this very unexpected true crime element that emerges for sure. Tell him thank you for saying the best. Appreciate that, smart kid. But uh, I always thought of it as just a really sort of a dark human drama. In a, in a way, it's like uh, they call him a kitchen sink drama. Everything somehow revolves around the family and the friends and the people in the town, a tight-knit community where, where things go awry. I, th- I thought of it as one of those stories. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly this true crime undercurrent that I do think subtly emerges for sure.
2: In another interview, you said that you thought Bob Ross was mysterious. I'm wondering what you found mysterious about him and and whether or not you still find him mysterious.
1: Well, he remains unknowable, Mm. just like all icons that die young. And I think that's the very thing that allows them to become um, icons of a certain level, which is They're not so clearly defined that you as an audience member are able to say, I do or don't connect with them. There is this unknowable element to their sort of whole being and their existence, their personality that you can then fill up with whatever you need from them. When people watch Bob Ross, you can get whatever you need out of the episode. You can calm down and just relax. It can help put you to sleep. You can have an escape from something anxiety-inducing. I, I spoke to a couple of people when I was making the film. One of them told me the story about how their parents were headed for a divorce when they were maybe 12 or 13. And it was it was a nightmare in the house. Constant fighting, constant bickering. And when this kid would come home from school and put on Bob Ross, they were relieved for 30 minutes of that angst permeating throughout the house. And then I spoke to somebody else who... Him and his buddies, they would get together after school and they would just, you know, get high and eat chips and just chill and watch Bob Ross and and (laughs) unplug that way. And so he could be whatever you you need him to be. And I think that is something that all icons have in common. You can listen to the song when you're going through a breakup or you can listen to the song when you're like running on the treadmill and you can get whatever you need from it.
3: I had to go to the emergency room because I was having problems with my pregnancy. My kidneys had stopped functioning. My liver had stopped functioning. And the only thing that they could do was to terminate my pregnancy. And that was a hard, it was hard to accept. The first time I turned on the television, there was Bob Ross.
0: When you're doing a painting, you look at it and you decide what makes you happy. This is your world right here, and there's no right or wrong, as long as it makes you happy and it doesn't hurt anybody else.
3: Bob brought the life back into my mind and my heart, and the joy that I never knew I could feel by painting.
2: Yeah. Sort of like ironically like a a blank canvas in his own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, literally, yeah.
2: Um, I'm wondering if part of your intention in making this documentary was to kind of put in the world like a real cautionary tale for artists. I
1: don't want to say I was thinking that because I wasn't. I, I was really just taken by the human story. I was taken by Bob's story how tragic his life was the way cancer touched his life um the loss of his second wife jane to cancer just a few years really before he died and and then i became really taken by 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 steve ross's human experience and this father son story that was mixed up in all of this all of this legal back and forth and all this stuff that just it should have nothing to do with the experience of your relationship with your parent, let alone the the death of your parent. But yet it was, you know, in many ways at the crux of it, I, I was really focused on that. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, it is it is a cautionary tale in that sense. And I, I know that when you're starting out, you just, when you're starting out, you'll sign anything, hmm. you know, you just you can't believe somebody is going to uh, support you. and And somebody says, Oh, I think you're good. I think, I think I want to uh, to you know to back you doing this thing. Um not to accuse myself of being an artist, but a, a, as a person who, you know, who who has pursued his, you know, his creative love which is filmmaking, it I mean I I would pay to do it. Um and when you're starting out, you that could really put you in a precarious situation potentially when you're getting into business with people. So, yeah, I mean that there's certainly a cautionary tale in that sense, but I didn't I didn't set out with that in mind.
2: We're in an era right now, Joshua, where TV has gotten really intense in many ways. There are some very extreme competition reality shows on, some very high drama dramas on, some very intense, you know, violent fantasy shows, you know, really, you know, slapstick or raunchy comedies. They're also, uh, we're kind of in this era of really, really popular quiet shows, you know, uh, baking shows, glass blowing shows, pottery shows where we just sort of watch people do things and make things and sort of be. Do you think that Bob Ross would have a place on our screens today if he were doing what he were doing on television right now?
1: Yes, I, I, and I I think that that is exemplified by the fact that people are still seeking out his show, and they are watching it today. I mean, especially during the pandemic. I, there was an article a couple of months ago about how his show exploded even more. There's a need for escape, and that could come from some totally salacious uh, dating show. That could come from a true crime scripted series or doc series, or it could come from watching Bob Ross or, you know, the Great British Baking Show. It's like, depending on the moment, we need different forms of escape. And clearly there's still a real sort of need and desire for Bob Ross, absolutely.
2: Well, I'd recommend that people get their escape from Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed. It's a great documentary. Joshua, thank you so much for talking with me about it.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director and producer Joshua Rofe. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Special thanks to Stephanie DeLeon-Sick. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.